Welcome to Therapists Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real-life matters. Hi, welcome to this special episode of Therapists Uncensored. I'm Ann Kelly, and I'm here with my co-host, Sue Marriott. So why a special episode? We're publishing this discussion on narcissism just a few days before the United States is going to select our next president. And it is definitely a time of just historic national pain and divisiveness. So, you know, why narcissism? You know, frankly, one aspect of this election that has driven people to such depth of passion is our collective draw or our version away from some of the large personalities that continue to inflame our fascination and our interest. You know, at Therapists and Censored, this is a podcast that's dedicated to promoting security and connection between people. So given that, we felt it really essential to explore this cultural phenomenon from a level of depth and compassion. So uh, to help us, we have the honor of having two very special guests joining our discussion who are experts in this area. Dr. Leonard Cruz and Dr. Stephen Booser. Dr. Cruz and Dr. Booser have co-edited the book entitled A Clear and Present Danger, Narcissism in the Era of Trump. Now, while the title of this book may suggest that our goal is to promote one candidate over another, we can assure you that's not our objective. A closer reading of the title, Narcissism in the Era of Donald Trump, This book, as well as this discussion, is going to take an in-depth look at our current culture to help us understand how did we get here, how we got here, and where we might go from here. We look at it from both an individual standpoint. Why are we drawn to narcissism in general? You know, as well as why currently we're drawn to narcissism and strong personality as a culture at this time in the U.S. history. And as a side note, you might note that the sound quality isn't quite up to par as the rest of our podcast. That's this episode is conducted remotely, but it's worth the listen. So stick with it. We get to a really good spot by the end. And amazingly enough, I think with the realistic hopefulness that we're eager to share. So uh, welcome and let's get started. So welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Uh, my name is Sue Marriott, and I'm here with my co-host and colleague, Ann Kelly. And we are very excited to welcome editors for this book, Clear and Present Danger, Narcissism in the Era of Trump. Uh, we're really happy to have you. Would you mind um, saying who you are and just a little bit about yourselves? Sure. My name is Len Cruz. Thank you for inviting us. We're just delighted to be here to do this podcast with you. Um, I'm a psychiatrist in practice in Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm also the editor-in-chief of Chiron Publications. Uh, it's a, a moderate-sized publishing company that specializes in books in death psychology, mythology, Jungian psychology, etc. Fantastic. We're so happy that you uh, were able to join us. Thank you. My name is Steve Buster. I'm also a psychiatrist, and I practice with Len Cruz here in the Asheville, North Carolina area. And also co-edited, you know, the book we'll be talking about today, Clear and Present Danger, Narcissism, the Era of Donald Trump, and serve as the publisher, you know, for the company, Camera Publications, as well. And I'm also delighted to be here. It's a real pleasure to speak with you all. Is there anything, just, and again, this could be informal, but is there anything that, given the timing, your book's been out for a little while, and we get to interview you right now at a, obviously, 
um, significant time in the American history right now, right before the election uh, between, uh, the, between Clinton and Trump, to give it a timepiece. And so given the timing, is there anything specific that, that would, you'd want to accomplish in the interview today or get out to the listeners? This whole concept of narcissism is so core within the book. And yes, it coincides with the current presidential elections and the energies that many of us are experiencing with narcissism being so you know, profound at times. Um, but beyond just this particular election, I think we were trying to get forward the sense that narcissism is a ongoing and growing kind of issue within our country, within the world that really transcends just this one particular moment in time. And a good part of the book was trying to get those elements out, you know, regardless of the, the actual election. Clearly, we tried to get it out right before the election because we thought it was such an important topic to be in people's consciousness. Uh, but the topic, I think, transcends the election itself. Well, that's definitely some of our interest is um, we want to use sort of uh, cultural events to be able to give meaning to uh, interpersonal events and um, to sort of deepen people's experience in the real world in their day-to-day -day life. So you're, it, we're, we're totally on board with this idea of this isn't just a moment in time, but this is an ongoing concern for folks. So uh, that, that was part of why we picked it up and really wanted to bring you guys on. That, that's probably the the centerpiece of how the book even came into to being was that it just seemed timely that this is, a, this is an occasion when you can shed some light on a topic that um, will have wide interest. And I think that's a big part of why some of the authors like um, Clarissa Pinkolastes and Jim Hollis and folks like that uh, signed on because apart from the fact that it was timely, I think all of our hopes was that even months after the election, the, there's content in this book that uh, would be valuable for anybody interested in the subject of narcissism, especially especially from a depth psychology perspective. Oh, years and years after the election, this is going yeah. to be a book I think that's going to hold I'm true value. Time. Because one of the things that I really enjoyed from the book was the way that you were able just basically to use our current figures. I mean, Trump is in your title, but you're, you're not talking about Trump. You're talking about a cultural phenomena that I think is so relevant. And it's relevant not only, it's relevant for both, the individual that we see in our practices, Sue and I, as well as the culture. And one of the things that I wanted to do is to spend some time as well, if we could drawing some parallel to our individual processes as we relate it to the cultural processes that we see going on. And I really enjoyed how y'all interweave that in the book. Mm -hmm. I'm curious when you think of your, uh, our, inner, our own individual process, what it kindled for you two as readers through it, I really understood that that's a scary topic for all of us. It's like, you know, so how do we face our own narcissism and what's getting invoked in me that is, you know, that I'm seeing out there in the culture and having a hard time dealing with? Yeah, which might lead even to the first question, which is, do you all, could you speak to um, exactly what Anna's getting at, which is, you know, what is it in us that is being evoked that can create um, such a phenomenon? And, and, you know, I, I think it's an interesting question to, to dissect from two very distinct directions. One being, what does it do for us individually? And what yeah. does it do for us as a collective body, politic, 
um, and for our culture at large. Yeah, that's perfect. We wanted to, we wanted to do both levels. That's wonderful. But the, I think the thing that mystifies a lot of us as we've watched this elections season pass has has been say what you will about Trump as a as a candidate, but it he there's no denying he has certainly activated something, and, mm -hmm. and maybe on the flip side he's activated. The, those those progressive forces that feel like this is just the most perilous, dangerous time, which perhaps both of those are really extreme perspectives. Mm -hmm. But you know, he he has done something to galvanize, like like you were saying, and very very distinct reactions in all of us, um, culturally and individually. Wouldn't you say, Steve? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This election, more than any other, has so activated yeah, energies within the conscious and the unconscious. Part of, of my motivation in pulling this book together was seeing so many clients that came in with this profound angst, anxiety, even some depressions of feeling overwhelmed by what was going on. Not on both sides. It wasn't necessarily mm -hmm. anti-Trump okay. or anti-Hillary. It was a combination of both. But both sides have such a polarizing influence that, that people are being activated. Sometimes they're aware, sometimes they're unaware, but the archetypal energies flowing through this election more than any other election I've seen has been just profound and striking. You know, one interesting too is that I think one of the things that's not so commonly known about Jungian psychology as it might be distinct from other fields is that this idea of um, manifestations of things in drastic polarity is is almost a bedrock principle in Jungian psychology and the, and the idea being that out of that it's pretty you know Hegelian and kind of this idea that out of those drastic differences one might hope to be able to transcend them so that if if you're just talking about the difference between the masculine and the feminine the goal being to be able to transcend that or in this case maybe the extremes between you know very domineering forceful masculine figure versus maybe a more nurturing feminine figure and how can you find some way to get beyond both of those opposites to some transcendent state. Mm -hmm. so, right, shadow and light. Um, exactly. Right, it's almost as though everything so. can manifest that way if you, if you take that perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for those listeners that are unfamiliar when you speak of arch archetypes and could you say a little more? Yeah, the archetypes the, we're in a Jungian psychological model, you know, with this, and the Jungians, you know, see patterns in humanity that are consistent and can be profound. The archetypes are constellations of that. So maybe examples would be the better way to describe that. A hero archetype is a common one. A mother archetype, a villain archetype. So the hero archetype would be Luke Skywalker, it would be yeah, any you know, figure that is on a journey, standing up, doing the heroic deed. And there's a clear pattern of the, the hero that evokes you know, common you know, feelings, energies, and themes within that. And there are really countless archetypes, anything that's got a powerful you know, energy that's rooted in the collective unconscious of, of culture yeah, is archetypal. So one way I, I kind of try and explain it if, if anybody asks is that it's, it's sort of, think of it like a template that there are certain parts of our psychological makeup that are surprisingly common. They, they make their, their appearances in the form of mythologic images, they make their appearances in our dreams, and they make their appearances in very particular ways 
for each of us individually. And, and, and let's say you have like a mother complex. It might gather together everything that might be nurturant, that might be provisional, things of that sort. So it's kind of like a template that gathers a lot of psychological energy together and is often best represented as a symbol. Well, so in this case, thank you for um, breaking it down. Yeah, breaking it down. Uh, you know, we don't, sometimes we make these assumptions of what each other right. knows about. But, so with Trump, going back to Trump for a moment, he could be shadow or light, depending on, you know, he could be the hero or the villain, depending on, you know, what's being evoked in you. Is that, would you say that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. In fact, Steve actually, in, it, in one of his um, contributions to the book, speaks very much of what, what he describes as almost like this um, archetype that you could identify with, with John Wayne. Mm -hmm. Want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that's the chapter with the Trump complex. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you want me to walk you through that whole concept, but it, the concept ends in a a question of what's underlying this Trump complex that's moving so many people towards you know this uh, unusual figure that usually wouldn't be a successful politician with this and part of the energies that we saw that were propelling potentially you know this complex and kind of mass energy towards Donald Trump was a central figure of what we call the John Wayne archetype so John Wayne is rooted in the North American mythology uh, of the United States, of the Wild West, conquering the West. <clears throat> Somebody who's a strong, rugged individualist who says exactly what he wants, who knows who the bad guy is, who's got a very clear us and them mentality, um, and shoots you know, quickly you know, with a unholstered gun. So, and Donald Trump has pulled in pretty masterfully some of these energies you know, of John Wayne uh, or that element of a hero archetype in essence which is really about strength and nostalgia. We talk a lot in that chapter on the Trump complex is about returning to a figure that's a strong man with a nostalgia to the good old days back when America was great again you know, when white men were in control there was no political correctness you know, we dominated the world militarily and economically, and there's a, a pull to almost resurrect 1950s, 1960s United States. Yeah, and Donald Trump, uh, to me, constellates that energy of, of, of nostalgia of the good old days, make America great again. And John Wayne being an archetype, you know, that seemed to connect, you know, with that, that Trump you know, complex and energy. One of the things, one of my interest that developed from what you're talking about though is to try to help um, bring it to our listeners in the sense of really trying to understand ourselves and what's going on in society right now in our culture from a more compassionate place and mm -hmm. more of a like more of a deep understanding of what's going on even inside of us if we get evoked either through hostility by Trump or feeling oh my gosh finally somebody's gonna bring us back to where we needed, you know, where we were before the good old days, the great times. One of the ways that you guys spoke about it is, is in, in your book is about sort of our concept of what we've lost as a culture and what we believed was our American exceptionalism. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about why the John Wayne you know, archetype exists and how it helps us as a culture to rely on that. And why it's so attractive, particularly right now. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the 
things that you picked up on is that at the root of this is a, a sense of having been wounded that we've all experienced sort of a whether and you know we each take the point of departure differently I think in large measure based on our age so Steve and I are only different in age by about a decade not even yeah, but, but it's funny I, I actually think the point of departure for me begins with Vietnam and our and our having to kind of uh, depart from Vietnam and at about the same time that was in my adolescence but you know what I remember is the presidency began to get um, shaken by Nixon's resignation and then we have this languishing period with you know the Arab oil embargo and if you just start tracing some of these things you know I think what it's done to us in, culturally is we were we were humbled you know, we came to realize that, you know, despite our expansiveness and our and our great um, vision of a city on the hill and all the all the wonderful images that are embedded in our in our psychological makeup as a nation, um, the reality is we we kind of reached some of those limits and we discovered that, you know, um, Viet Cong could actually defeat a, a major world power, and then we've now we're dealing with ISIS and similar kinds of you know things happening in Europe and you know even if you go back to just the the stock market crash or the, or the you know the economic displacements you know it's one thing after another and so the premise that, that I think you picked up on very astutely is that in the midst of that wounding we wish to be delivered and that's been one of the most fascinating things culturally to look at is how can a, how can a figure who's charismatic and strong sort of come into that scene and make promises that many people have acknowledged are hugely unrealistic. You're not going to build a, a, a $50 billion wall and all sorts of things. But, you know, from a psychological perspective, it doesn't matter whether it's factual. Mm -hmm. It still accomplishes the purpose of, well, I feel restored. I feel like my wound is being tended and somebody is lifting me up. And I, I think, you know, just as an aside, if we get to the personal part, that's one of the most fascinating things is to begin to look at the dance between the person with narcissistic traits and what it activates in, in each of us. Because, you know, at the root of it, if you're with somebody who's a powerfully intense, narcissistically disturbed individual, you almost can't help but to do a dance with them. I was just going to say that. True, too, in clinical practice, but we've all seen that when we're trying to deal, especially in couples therapy, where one of the individuals is profoundly narcissistic. It's, it, it's almost like trying to you know, cleave somebody from from the power of that narcissistic influence. Right, and to understand that in our in ourselves what gets caught, and I, I agree with you, Lynn, like when you're working with somebody, either in couples or individually, and they know they're involved with a narcissist, it's clear, they know they're being mistreated, they know that they're not, that, 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 that may be being lied to, but what it invokes inside, both just emotionally and even, you know, as, as we like to talk about it, chemically, what is being evoked inside of us in the sense of being able to get away from our own vulnerability, our own inferiority. The about it is when the narcissist casts their, their favor upon you, yes. it's a powerful intoxicant. Absolutely. Individually and culturally. Right. And, of course, the flip side of that is when they threaten to withdraw it or yep. like we're terrifying. Where, you know, I think um, Donald Trump is, is beginning to whiff the idea that perhaps he won't win and maybe he'll experience that as this very intense humiliation. Boy, when, when, they when you feel the withdrawal of that, you, you come upon a rage that you could never have anticipated.
That's right. I think that I think it seems like that we all seem to be bracing whichever side that you're on, pro or against Trump. I think there is a sense in our nation right now that we're bracing for what's going to happen when, and again, we're not diagnosing, um, we're not diagnosing Trump as narcissistic, but we all have narcissistic traits, and we have seen some evidence of some narcissistic traits, and and with 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 Trump, and and in that it, what will happen. And what we have to brace for once that injury happens, it's going to be a little, it's going to be very fascinating and a little dangerous, getting back to your title. You know, and it's funny even to think about, you know, I understand we shouldn't extrapolate from our clinical work with couples, let's say, too too much. But, but at the same time, you know, how many times have we encountered the spouse um, who's with a narcissistic um, partner? Who, who can't rip themselves away for fear that they might evoke that petulant kind of mm-hmm. intense rage. And, and think of how many people have been shy and timid about distancing themselves from, from Donald Trump's candidacy, no matter what he might say or do that they might find objectionable. But you wonder, you know, are they being similarly sort of intimidated by the risk that, well, we don't want to incur the wrath. Exactly. Uh, you know. The direct wrath, and then I don't know if y'all know. You, also, there's that once you do remove, that you're out of the light, and that there's fear and anxiety that gets evoked. You know, in in our individuals in sessions, if like it's, I know I'm away, I'm away, I'm so glad, but what's missing in me is so profound that it makes me want to go back. You know, so it, and the fear of missing out. If I've left that light, and everybody goes on without me. And I wonder if that also gets evoked. You know, what I hope some of the listeners are also thinking about as they reflect on these topics is their own experiences, whether it's been in their work life. Because I don't know about the two of you, but I know that I've certainly worked. I worked for a chairman of a department that I trained in who was really an extraordinarily gifted clinician, great teacher, and intensely narcissistic. And we lived kind of in the balance, the crucible of, wanting to please and sometimes almost embarrassed by how much you want to please and then being terrified that you might at some point fall out of favor and God knows what the consequence might be. So I think most of us have probably worked with people who are narcissistic and found ourselves suddenly in that orbit where we couldn't, we didn't want to leave but we didn't want to stay. Exactly. Well, even if you've been to grad school, like, you know, like, you're at the road. You work so hard to get in and then, you know. Might run up against that as well. It makes me think of a, I don't know if it's a silver lining, maybe a gray lining, however, of um, another uh, phenomenon that I'm seeing that I think that we could apply both individually and culturally, which is people finding their voice and experiencing this almost giddy excitement about getting out and claiming themselves and naming things. And in particular, I'm thinking about this piece on sexual assault and women naming their experiences and um, even, for example, uh, sort of the movement of why don't we tell? And then people are saying over and over, like, why they haven't told and the real specific reasons why they haven't reported. And um, so... You know, the backlash of some of this has been really interesting. I've seen it um, personally in my practice, but also you can see it in social media, the, um, 
the embrace almost of the antithesis, you know, the embrace of the power of pushing away. Nancy Ferlati wrote a chapter in the book that was really powerful and well done, where she really expresses vulnerability and expresses what it was like to live with a narcissist for really decades. Yeah. And and this is a strong woman, a powerful woman, a Jungian analyst, yeah, yet to see the level of uh, pain and suffering you know, she endured for year after year after year was was very striking. And as I was reading, yeah, that, that chapter written by Nancy just really brought home of of how all of us can be under the spell of that, and when it's right in the home, it can be so potentially destructive. I think there's one reason I would like to talk about just exact. I, I loved that chapter, by the way, and and felt the vulnerability really courageous in it. And yes. I think I think one of my desires in this interview is to is to keep again. I, I mentioned in the beginning to talk about compassion and for self, right? Like, how do we get involved with a narcissist? How do we get attracted and the, the, it, to it? And what is it within us that? That gets drawn towards that, and so if we, if we stop to think about that, that she can think about how we can all get wrapped up in that. And I'm wondering if we could speak a little bit more about that. You know, in in the chapter that I contributed, one of the things I did that was very intentional, I I kind of wove into the chapter um, Adlerian ideas because you know in the Jungian world that's just not commonly done. Bring in other perspectives. Um, <laughs> But I thought it was a really very fitting um, backdrop to explain narcissistic inflation in that you, you could make a good case, I think, for at the root of that is we all, if you believe how Adler kind of discovered the idea, and he was the one who introduced the concept of an inferiority complex, that you know, we've all had our periods, obviously primarily in our youth, where we experienced profound vulnerability and we felt like we were always at risk of being inferior to the other, at least that's how he kind of formulated it, and that you could almost look at the, the antithesis being, well, if I can inflate myself as greater than all others, that could be a defense against that feeling of vulnerability that goes with inferiority. And, you know, that came home to me most powerfully when I watched the, the um, debates on the Republican side where there were moments when Donald Trump turned to like Jeb Bush and and kind of humiliated him with how kind of uh, anemic his approach was or called Marco Rubio little Marco that I thought you know how many men in this culture have been on a playground and right. been bullied and if you haven't been the one bullied you've been witness to somebody bullied and you just didn't want to be or you were the bully so no matter who you are if you're a boy in our culture you you you've been on that stage watching and and I thought isn't it interesting nobody's calling out his awful conduct partly I wondered because we've all been there at least mm -hmm. as males I don't know how that is for for women in terms I don't think they've been experiencing bullying but boy, when he started when his gross you know assaults on women began to be exposed I, I don't know if you were referring to that tweet series that came out where the woman posted her first her first abuse right. experience and before mm -hmm. you knew it within hours millions had, had responded mm -hmm. I mean that's a real testament to the culture and how we how we actually ask people to remain silent of their wounds don't you think mm -hmm. 
Absolutely, and how we can remain silent because it stirs up our own sense of being the bully or being bullied. And I think of also the concept of um, that we can get distracted with sort of identification with the aggressor, like he's a bully, and yet so we, when he's in the active phase of bullying, we're like, oh my gosh, but when he's powerful and he's moved on the next day... And you're and, in his favor. And you're in his favor, there's this... You feel lifted up with him. Right. right. But do you want to admit it? Yeah. Did you get a chance to notice that in one of the chapters, it's actually written by a non-psychologist, which I thought was a wonderful contribution. We have, we have a chapter in there by a professor who um, has expertise in Italian fascism. And oh, it's yeah. a, a striking thing to realize that I, I think this is not unique to Donald Trump. This is, this is remarkably common to strong people, whether it's Putin or what we see happening in Europe or what we saw happening in the, in the 20s and the 30s with, with Mussolini. Uh, and it's not to vilify Donald Trump, it's to point out there, there must be something universal that gets tapped into from time to time that, that explains this, don't you think? Absolutely. 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 Um, I think that's oh, exactly we have it. a tie. That means it stirred a lot of different <laughs> thoughts. So that's probably because there's so many different directions. But I, yes, absolutely. Well, no, I, I mean, this really gets to the, um, even today, uh, which, by the way, we are just a few days out from the actual election. I'm not sure when, as you're listening to this, that you might be listening, but we are just pre-election, post the debates, and, um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen exactly, but we, the country could not be more stirred up. There could not, I mean, we don't go through a day without... Um, the latest of what's happening and um, so the level of stimulation is so high and so one of the things I'm thinking about is what's going to happen you know on November 9th if the uh, if the United States was your client <laughs> you know if we, if we think of the collective psyche <laughs> and they come into you like what would be the best most healing outcome that could happen um, uh, I don't mean even externally but you know like what's the injury and what's the outcome? Um, because I know part of and, and, and another language that I'm thinking of is that we um, this narcissistic extension that part of how that we can gain our value is by mirroring the other and I mean that's some of what we've been right. talking about. But no matter what happens on November eighth, there's going to be a break. And we did a seminar last week that was delightfully international. We had Jungian analysts, you know, from the United States, of course, but uh, Switzerland and London and Berlin. We had about five or six of us all kind of hosting really just a discussion on, on these topics. And the outsiders, the ones that weren't from the United States, gave such a delightful perspective on that because they have the ability to see it. And it. <laughs> help! <laughs> please help us! <laughs> But the guy from Berlin was uh, really fascinating because at one point he brought up, if I'm remembering it right, was saying, you know, Steve, this is not necessarily a bad thing. We, we kind of label things as good or bad, and if we're against Clinton, we see Clinton as a bad thing, or Trump as a you know, dangerous you know, person. But his point was, yeah, 
Trump and Clinton are just tapping into very deep energies, wounds, and anger and confusion from within the uh, psyche of the United States. And isn't that a good thing that, that Donald Trump is diving into that? Because these energies need to express themselves. And if they don't express themselves, they become bottled up and explode in even you know, more dangerous ways. And yeah, I hadn't thought of that aspect of it, which really goes to post-election, because as these two sides, which are so polarized and so opposites, as they've been expressing these deep angers and concerns and, and yeah, ideas, somehow now that they're all on the table, there needs to be this coming together and this healing and a reconciliation of that, of how do we move forward as a country with that, which is one reason why people that hear Donald Trump saying he might not accept the validity of the election get a chill down their back because that's going exactly against that healing process because it's lingering and, and, and egging it on. But whatever happens, clearly these energies that have been expressed now need to percolate through in some kind of, of new you know, space that, that carries both. Steve, Steve just made me um, come up with an amusing thought. You know, like <laughs> Great. I can't wait to hear question about, Well, what would we do if the country was our patient? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking maybe we'd tell them this was just one very long psychodrama session, and now it's over. <laughs> I was thinking of a dream. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if you all saw the Saturday Night Live episode from last Saturday, but Tom Hanks did a marvelous job. And in one of the skits, they set him up that Tom Hanks is the father of the country, and he's doing a fireside chat, saying, um, it's going to be okay, guys. You're going through some throwing pains. There's some stuff coming up, but it's going to be all right. He has a sweater on, and he's really in this very supportive psychotherapeutic role. It really was kind of like, I mean, if you think about how archetypes keep popping up, mm -hmm. um, what I thought is, oh, this is weird. It's like it's like Mr. Rogers yes. meets Father Knows Best. Mm -hmm. and, and I love the line where he says, and by the way, we can smell the weed or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and your mother knows too. <laughs> your mother, right? Well, I think that is really because it's not, as we've said several times, it's not just Trump, but like uh, it's these big personalities that we want to organize around. So if it wasn't Trump, it would have been someone else, well, perhaps Cruz, there's Cruz there's and then Sanders on the other side, like that that stand for something that represents something. And we're a little angry at times. People sometimes express anger towards Clinton in some ways for not really having that personality that, that we can follow. Where that, where that we can't necessarily see her yet by the fireside bringing, the, bringing it together, right. um, whereas we can, might That's imagine Trump. Tell us something also about just the nature of politics at the national level that, you know, from what I've been reading and what I've heard from people who apparently have worked with, with Secretary Clinton, she yes. may have some very unusual gifts at being an exquisitely sensitive listener who can then take what she hears and kind of craft it into, into detailed policy. But you think about how that is so ill-suited to standing at a podium and, and pontificating and sort of promoting yourself. You know, it, it speaks volumes, I think, about, well, gosh, we get the leaders we deserve, don't we? Because if, right. if all and, and we Right. Bloviating, then you get somebody that is a little bit less conciliatory and less, you know, accommodating. 
it, it's also, you know, it's we, we get leaders that is evoking something that's going on in us, just like we choose partners based on something that's getting evoked in us. So if we can step back right. both as individuals as well as as a culture to go, not let's be divisive and say, oh my gosh, if we get this bad leader, whether it be, in your opinion, Clinton or Trump out of the picture, then we're going to be fine, which I think is this really black and white. We want this fantasy of one's, one's going to save us, or, or and then we can relax and kick back. But it's just like as, as we work clinically with somebody, it isn't about getting rid of that partner. It's about going within and looking inside of us about what why we get drawn to these individuals and there's a good reason and we need to be compassionate in ourselves and a compassionate as a culture we don't need to keep one of the things that's been troubling me is when we then start putting down and laughing at ourselves as a culture now I want us to laugh in this humbling loving way right. but I find people laughing in a very self-deprecating way as a culture and I think that's what's getting exposed and if that we can stop instead, and I love the addition of, of the chapter towards the end of your book about the opposite of loneliness is not together, it's intimacy. Yes. And if we were going to extrapolate on that, if we started with the individual and then wrap to the cultural, the individual, one of the things we need to do when we work with that is what's going on inside you that's drawing you to this personality? Why do you need, and, and doing it from a compassionate place and then helping them through that self-understanding reach out in an intimate way with another. And so I think, if I think about it culturally, and, and then I'd, I'd love your opinions on this, is that if we think about the opposite of loneliness is not togetherness, when we get that one leader that can polarize, while we're over there and we agree with them, we have a togetherness and we think, now I'm whole. But that's not really true. And, and, and so that book, what you're saying is actually intimacy. If we can push no matter what happens, no matter who gets elected, if we could push for intimacy, in other words, self-understanding, understanding of both sides, whether you were a Trump supporter or a Clinton supporter, there's a reason you support them, and it's evil and ignorant and dumb, is that there's something going on inside of you, and you're supporting them, and can we work as a culture to support each other and understand? Understanding, so that we can bring down divisiveness and create more intimacy in our culture. What What are your thoughts about? That sounded really good. <laughs> <laughs> and and when will yeah. you be running for office? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, wouldn't that be a lovely result? And you know, at the heart of the, the... I can be a little idealistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it's funny. I, I want to comment. One of the things that I found kind of intriguing is we were in the early days of recruiting different authors, and I was talking with uh, Clarissa Pinkolesta, CPS, and, um, and at that time, I was still quite the fan of Bernie Sanders. And I, I think I had many reasons for being that. One, at the heart of it, I think I'm an extreme progressive who has had some good success in life. So I, I live more like a Republican, but in my heart, I'm a progressive. But, you know, she made a very interesting comment. She said, you know, at some point, you're going to have to grow up. And, mm -hmm. and I thought, well, that's kind of a hurtful way of thinking. But I, I think I understood what she meant. And she wasn't meaning me. I think she meant all of those. All of us. Right, because mm -hmm. what I think he captivated was this youth, which is the most bizarre thing that this guy in his 70s did this, but, you know, he captured this idea that, you know, idealism is on the rise and there's no reason that it needs to be um, tempered with, a realistic approach that you know we can have it all and we can 
it almost felt like the Kennedy era reborn for me. Mm -hmm. You right. know, and, um, and and when she said that about well, you know, at some point we have to get out of our adolescence, it was at first it stung a little, and then I thought actually, you know, it's true. Who knew that I still had an adolescent that was that I harbored that could be so easily activated, and and that goes to your point, and I think the benefit that we might accrue with this book, with this this moment in time, might be that to the extent that we can see, well, isn't it interesting? It awakened something in me. Who knew that I had such strong feelings um, towards whatever the opposite political leaning was? Um, but but if we cease to see it as the villain is outside, but the yeah. villain is really within us, within then us. what we can realize is, oh, you know, in the same way as I would want somebody to extend some respect for my position politically, um, at least try and find some compromise, doesn't it obligate us to do the same for the other. That would be a wonderful result. And if Donald Trump provoked that, and so did um, Hillary Clinton, we would be indebted to them, wouldn't we? Well, I, I love that idea of, you know, that we're grow maybe that this is a process, a developmental process of growing up. And that we, and if that were the case, and so um, we wouldn't need the very strong father figure or the very strong mother figure that has all the answers that we can then all gather around and might and sort of mindlessly follow but that we can have our mind and have critical thinking and then also support a candidate and and, oh, and have room bias. for difference I have a personal bias Steve and I have bounced back and forth on this as maybe a, a follow-up to this book um, yes. You know, I've, I've thought that there is an underbelly to President Obama's and Bernie Sanders' um, sort of surge in popularity in that when you have what looks like a benevolent leader, mm -hmm. it, it, I think it has the risk of arousing a certain passivity, like, well, yeah, go ahead, deliver me into the promised land. Yes, go do it for <laughs> us. You know, it's really all That's up to really us. That's really true. Mm -hmm. Kind of like if you have a good accountant, you don't even look at your books or what have you, and you just <laughs> export <laughs> everything. Yeah. <laughs> what was the last thing you said, Len? Well, you just put your receipts in an envelope, and you never give it another thought, and, you, right. and then at and the end of the year, you're reminded why you should have. Exactly. <laughs> Who doesn't want a leader that can say, I'm going to do it. Just rely, take care of everything. Uh, rely I'm, on me. I'm the one that can do it. You guys sit back. I got you. Don't even think. Right. right. <laughs> but, so, you know, it's interesting if you look at both it's of those. Wonderful fantasy. You know, in one case, you have somebody who is ready to vilify anybody in order to advance. And, right. and we couldn't help it. You know, we all wanted to watch. I mean, people would ask me, are you going to watch debates? I said, you know, I'm going to look if I drive by an ugly, bloody accident. I don't mean to, but I'm going to look. So yes, I'm going to watch the debate. And like I said, on the flip side, you have really charismatic, benevolent leaders that might be, I hope this will be easily understood by the listeners, but who are infantilizing us in a way. You know, oh, say more. It's so true. Childlike. Yes. And, and we don't, and, and we're sort of sitting by for it because it's like it's giving us something that we don't even realize we are wanting. It's kind of that, of course, oh, please you know, We all have a vested interest in this, don't we? As therapists, all of us here talking, um, we have this abiding sense that if you become aware of these things, that might be the ticket out. Exactly. I hope that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a great point. Are there any other final thoughts? Are there other final thoughts um, from either of you that you would like to leave, leave folks with? 
I want to just touch again what Anne you were saying about the intimacy you know, piece of again back to that polarization. These two sides are so polarized and so opposite. The energies are so much coming you know, forward. The Jungian concept is that the tighter apart and opposite and polarized they get, that something needs to rise above that, transcend it, and not balance the opposites, but somehow bring them into a, a new level. And I think your idea of intimacy really hits that well. If somehow, instead of anger, vilification, and attacking the other, but there can somehow be an acknowledgement of why the other side might feel the way they have. And if there could be some bridge of intimacy, you know, with the the other, you know, that could really bring this to a, a better space, a healing level, and move it you know, forward. Because all of us have narcissism, you know, within us. Mm -hmm. you know, every one of us, you know, reflects some aspects, you know, of the themes within this book. And if nothing else, the book can get us to look inside at ourselves, identify how we hold that, and can be a little humbled you know, by that and try to connect to others who might share it. You know, then we're moving towards that, that healing bridge that, that you were talking about. That's nice. It's so well stated, and, and I think to, to be humbled, I love that you're saying we all have the narcissism. We're all trying to deal with our own aspects of it. And one thing about your book that was humbling for me is when you spoke about that one of the things is our, our American archetype, our American belief, is that we're supposed to, to save the world. We're supposed to be the benevolent right. saviors. They're going to democratize everyone. Aren't, aren't we the center of the map? <laughs> we're, yeah, that we're the center. <laughs> it's so on all the maps I see. The United States is right center. <laughs> it's very big. And it's humbling because I, I, um, I think about, you know, how much that... That we, we, we think about the malevolent narcissism that is out there. And, and, and by the way, we probably aren't going to have time to get into it, but I really want to encourage the readers to read this book for so many reasons. But they really help you. This book does such a great job to help you understand the different forms and kinds of narcissism that, that, in, that, that are so relevant to understand to make this topic so, uh, so much deeper. So we'll just say that, and we're talking about narcissism from more of a global standpoint. But we, we use narcissism as if it only leads to bad, but there's so much good in narcissism. That's right, you, healthy you need, narcissism. You need some healthy narcissism to push through all that. Th we needed healthy narcissism to, to, to even colonize America. And you'll speak to that in the book. And, and so I had to face my narcissism. I'm not going to say it's healthy or not healthy, but the whole part of, like, I wanted to believe that I had so much to offer to get out there and took a trip to Africa, and it was so humbling because I thought, oh, I'm going over this, for this and I'm going to help them. And it was fortunately I went with some uh, we went to some individuals both yep. both Sue and I went we went with some individuals that really helped knock us to our knees on that <laughs> yes. and, and and humbled us and, and and your book spoke to that like I think as a culture and Lynn you spoke to this earlier um, as a culture we have believed that we are supposed to we're either the ones narcissistically wanting to just gain favor and power. But we might also be the benevolent. We wanting to believe in our greatness so that we can go out and help everybody, and that that has as much clear and present danger. It, it, our belief in that has just as much clear and present danger as the belief that we're just going to use our narcissism to take control and power and fame. And I think having to face my own, oh, I can get out there, and how humbling it is to realize how arrogant that is, and that I have to face my own struggles with that and, and your book did a great job and, it, and that's going to be part of our journey as a culture too to heal from this. 
you know, maybe a few closing remarks if I could add. Uh, join would be picking up on what you just said, and you know, I think one of the as I've thought about this, we've obviously in editing the chapters, a lot of attention went into this, and there's so many different perspectives that it, it sort of forced me to kind of re-examine my own views. But I, I think one of the things that I came away from having edited the the volume was that perhaps one um, pivot upon which the difference between uh, unhealthy and healthy narcissism might be um, identified would be does does the narcissism take the other into account? Yes. You know, if I am infused with a benevolent feeling, and I'm maybe you might say you were misguided when you went to Africa and naive, but but at your heart, the at what was driving that inflated sense was still the concern for the other. Mm -hmm. I think where it turns in a direction that can be profoundly damaging and unhealthy is when it becomes so self-absorbed that the other is obliterated or at least fails to be considered. So that's one thing that I think readers might get from reading the book is just varied perspectives on how that that fine axis on which it pivots. But the other thing I, I just wanted to mention is and um, listeners can go to a, a website where we've actually posted this chapter. Um, CPS has wrote a chapter at the end of the book titled um, "Do Not Lose Heart." We were made for times for these times, and it's a very uplifting and inspiring chapter about the fact that you know it's easy to become despairing in the midst of all these very charged emotions, but we we ought not to go there. We ought to remember that. For all we know, we've all been preparing for this very moment where all these forces get unleashed. It, it really becomes incumbent on all of us as citizens of a, of a pretty amazing nation, an experiment that's still ongoing. I think it becomes incumbent on us to then, when November 9th does arrive, let's, let's think about, okay, so what are we commissioned to do? Maybe we're commissioned to figure out how we bind these forces and, and do something productive. How do we transcend these opposite very intense energies. You know, for myself, personal quick antidote, antidote my, the guy who cuts my hair declared <laughs> himself a Trump supporter, which I did not know. But um, about five weeks ago when I needed a haircut and I called him, he couldn't cut my hair. So I went to somebody else. I never thought twice about the possibility that that would have implications. But he has seen some of my posts about the book. And so the night before last, I begin getting this flurry of very intensely angry emails. I don't realize, or Facebook messages. I don't realize that they're directed at me because I just think, but there are things like, I guess friendship doesn't count at all. Um, I guess it's not possible to differ, disagree. And then I get a private message at five o'clock this morning, which I've yet to respond to, that said, so I'm sure you've already gone to another hairdresser, uh, another stylist, and that's fine if friendship doesn't really mean anything. And I realized, oh my lord, I had no idea what I had provoked. Um, and you know, so now that we're having this conversation, my heart's turning because my original thought was, maybe I just need to like forget about that. Uh, um, no, actually, maybe what I need to do is that's the place where I'll start making reconciliation. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, because it's an injury, and that's what narcissism is, actually, in its essence, is an injury. And, you and know so what? he's hurt. Right. The antidote for that is intimacy. So, right. you know, maybe I need to go back and get my hair cut. And... <laughs> 
Absolutely. Oh, that's beautiful. So maybe that's what everybody can do on November 9th, is find somebody that they actually had some disagreement with and connect yeah. I love that idea yes. of reaching out across the divide um, on November 9th and, mm -hmm. and helping. Move. And not some broad, sweeping fashion like oh, I always feel so badly when I see Syrian refugees. I just don't want any living next door to me, you know. But in a way, like, no, maybe I'll actually reach out to somebody. Wouldn't yeah. that be lovely? I think that would be incredible. It's a great, it's a great challenge um, to... Um, and if this podcast, I know that honestly, one of the my goals that I told Sue about this podcast was that we were that we were here to to talk about a, a very wonderful book that brings a topic up in all of us. It isn't about you know that we can help actually relate to, not stand more in judgment. If you read the title, it almost sounds like we're going to stand in self righteousness and judgment over somebody named Trump. But it isn't what the book in the end plays out. It actually brings humbling to each one of us. And if we use the idea of intimacy as a culture, that's what you're speaking about. And that is we have to understand our own vulnerabilities so that we can reach out to them. Why am I supporting whom I'm supporting? And why is that other person? And knowing that they're both probably really good reasons. And in intimacy, like you were saying, Lynn, it's knowing the other. But I would also say it's having insight in the self. So... I think I'm really grateful when I went to Africa that even though I went there with really good causes, that if I don't have that insight and that humbling experience, then I might act out something that isn't very helpful, and I go away thinking that people were just ungrateful, and and it perpetuates, you know. So if I can have insight that that sense that I had something special to offer, and maybe as a United States and as a culture, we still have really important things to offer this world. We haven't become we have very important gifts, and we want to keep giving. But what, I, what we really are humbling is how much we have to, to receive. And we started out with that with Steve, with that culture. They were, they were helping us work through it. And we haven't, as a culture, really let ourselves even think that we need to receive. Yeah, we have a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn. And, you know, this is actually part of the whole point of the podcast, is trying to promote security and secure relating. So I really like the direction that this has gone in around how are we going to heal and integrating split off parts within us not living in fear because moving towards intimacy I'll tell you one of the most touching things as publishers that we that we've experienced and I think Steve's had this as well to have people come up to us and say you know I read your book and it made me realize you know, I, I think I was married to somebody who was very narcissistic mm. or you know I'm afraid my boss is hugely narcissistic. You know, what they do with that, I don't know. But, right. you know, when you write or when you publish your hope or when you do podcasts, mm -hmm. I think your hope right. is that you can actually have an effect. And so That's it's right. been profoundly um, yeah. humbling to realize, wow, for some people, just to read some of the chapters was was illuminating. I mean, it, it makes the whole enterprise worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. Very much so, and um, yeah, especially, um, I don't know if we said it enough, but just to reemphasize one thing, that the whole um, phenomena of narcissism really does come from a psychological injury to begin with, and that it's an adaptation due to an injury, and that even just thinking of it that way can really, I think, get us down the road a little bit around how to respond and how to not be um, taken in some of the ways that we can be taken. All right. Well, thank you so much, um, 
for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it and have very much enjoyed it, and it's been inspirational and exciting. And thank you for listening. Um, check us out at www.therapistuncensored.com where you can join our email list and um, uh, on Facebook. And, of course, you can subscribe to the podcast at all podcast platforms, including iTunes and Stitcher and Android. Thank you for listening to special episode 13 and a big thank you to our guests, Dr. Stephen Booser and Dr. Leonard Cruz, editors of Clear and Present Danger, Narcissism and the Error of Donald Trump. So you can find this book and their contact information on our show notes at www.therapistuncensored.com. Now there you can also sign up for our email list so you don't miss out on any of our goodies that we have in store for you. And we also encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or in Android or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Finally, another side note about this episode, Cameron, our audio editor, is quite concerned that you know that we have some sound issues and that audio quality is very important and we're going to continue to work on that for our remote interviews. So thanks for listening. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly, Patty Alwell, and Sue Marriott. Cameron Lindsay edits the show.